Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Hi there. Wherever and whenever you are on the amazing planet Earth, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey to science fiction, science fantasy and science fact in all its forms. The Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvellous continuum we call science fiction. I'm your host, Ralph Carr, for Krypton Radio. This evening we have a great show for you, because tonight we're interviewing Jacob Fox, the author of the amazing Fifth World series. He's here to tell us about his life and work, the things that make him tick, his loves, his hates and his aspirations. Jacob, hello. Hello, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Um, if you don't mind straight in, um, can you tell us something about yourself? Well, um, I'm, uh, from, I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. I currently live in North Carolina. I work for a uh, pharmaceutical company down here during uh, the day. And uh, on my downtime, I write uh, science fiction. Okay, cool. Um... So, so uh, in in Chicago, um, you know, uh, what schools, colleges, and things did you attend? But I, um, I, uh, I grew up in the the suburbs. So I wasn't in the the city itself. I was in the, the cities uh, surrounding it. They're you know pretty big in their own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to college, uh, a bunch of small liberal arts colleges. I went to one for two years and then finished off at a different one, and then went to law school at uh, DePaul University, which is uh, downtown. In uh, Chicago, right, uh, right in the loop. I don't know if uh, you've ever been to Chicago or anything, but it's not yet. <laughs> I I would recommend it. Uh, it's a great place to visit. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so, why science fiction, David? Uh, sorry, Jacob. Well, um, I became kind of a a, a nerd on this uh, when I watched a Star Trek: The Next Generation uh, marathon when I was like eight years old. Ah. And uh, actually, I just got done watching an episode like five minutes ago. Um, it's it got me hooked on just the future, the world of tomorrow, and what would happen to us. Um, of course, space is uh, it's the next fi- the next frontier, the final frontier. And so I started, uh, and I'm also kind of a history buff, so I started putting together this uh, timeline of what you know, kind of a um, I guess kind of a, re- a possible future, something that's plausible uh, from you know from the year 2000 when I started it to 2400, or I don't I'm not sure where I stopped, but it was it was just a timeline of events going forward and all the technologies that could impact uh, humanity, the political events, the um, uh, natural disasters, and things like that. And I basically worked on that kind of just. Um, on the side, I never really wrote any stories about it. I never really wrote fiction. I actually, it was all kind of explanatory, and it's kind of a weird way, weird hobby for me. And 
I worked on it for years, and then in law school, um, of course, you know, law school is more intense, and you learn a lot, and, you know, you go back to the timeline that you wrote when you were 17 and realize that, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you don't really, didn't really know what you were talking about, did you? So I, uh, <laughs> I spent the, the limited downtime I had in law school, which was usually just the summers, on refining it and changing some things in it, and around 08 or 09, I think, the third year of law school, I decided to turn it into an actual story, and I, uh, I was doing it for my own my own entertainment. I never thought of publishing it, but uh, I got uh, in, got a lot of encouragement from others, and also found out that um, it's gotten technology's gotten to a point where you can you can self publish and, and get a work out there to a lot of people without you know going through a traditional publisher. And it's uh, it was obviously it's not that easy because if you just you know if anyone can just publish anything, you, you get kind of this uh, rush of things that aren't refined. So I had to. You know, find an editor, find someone to help me with the cover, and talk to a lot of people that were in the business to kind of go over the process of what a normal publisher goes through and bringing the work from, you know, a really horribly, you know, messy manuscript to an actual novel. So it's um, it's very educational. I learned a lot about it because I, like I said, I never did anything like this before. I never thought I'd be a writer. I, you know, went to law school. It was it was going to be a law firm for me. So yeah. (laughs) Things, uh, things switch directions, and this is ten times more fun. And um, I still have the day job. I still do some work in, in the law and regulatory for um, uh, pharmaceutical companies developing new drugs. So I still do that. But uh, this is kind of uh, becoming my uh, my I guess your my vocation or the side thing that might actually you know if it ten, ends up paying the bills that'd be fantastic. But, that sounds uh, for pretty now, good. <laughs> it's for now it's just fun. So that's the. Yeah, that's the story behind this. <laughs> All right. So, so if um, if somebody is out there listening to us now, and uh, they they said, you know, I've got this idea for a book, you know, I've got got it partly written, and and so, what would your advice be to them? Well, um, my first, the first kind of the mistakes I made early on was was that uh, I I didn't read. It's not really a mistake, but it was I didn't read a lot of fiction before this. I read a lot of textbooks, uh, history books, you know, stuff that's not, you know, dry, it's dry, it's boring, it's not something that people do for leisure. <laughs> um, and I real, and the more I read, I decided that I was going to read, I was going to read a lot of fiction as I wrote and kind of learn, you know, and kind of, and Stephen King actually in his book on writing recommends the same thing that if you're going to write, you also have to read a lot mm-hmm. as you write. Yeah. And, uh, so I started doing that, and the more I read, the more I realized my original story was had a lot of problems with it. <laughs> yeah. So I addressed, you know, I, I slowly learned more and more and addressed it, and then I brought it to uh, an editor. And the editing process can be uh, pretty uh, rough on someone who's never gone through it before. I'm not used to having people challenge, you know, my creativity or challenge the way I do things in this area. So it was a little tough on the ego. But I, I do recommend people, uh, if you do have a manuscript to, to not, or anyone out there to not self-edit it, bring it to an editor, a freelance editor, or someone you know that can do the job and do it effectively, because uh, one of the things that, that kind of pushes books to the back of people's minds is if it's got grammar and organizational mistakes left and right, it's kind of, uh, there's a lot of grammar Nazis out there, and they'll they'll tear your book down if you don't get, get it right, so those are the those are the two things I learned early on, and um, yeah, us geeks can be pretty ruthless. 
Well, yeah, that, yeah, and that's the other thing, the technology. If you don't do your uh, homework on the technology, uh, you, you get people calling you out on, you know, on theoretical <laughs> physics and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So you, if you're gonna do, yeah, if you're gonna do science fiction, I, I, and I do the same thing when I read sci-fi that doesn't make sense. I get angry that they didn't do their homework and, yeah. So, or get, maybe not angry, but a little irked that, like, wait a minute. So, I would say if you're doing science fiction, do your homework. I guess for other speculative fiction, it's not really as uh, it's not really as key. Um, but if you're doing kind of hard technology, uh, got to do your homework, and you got to, which you know, sucks for a lot of people. But uh, those, yeah. So it's it's not easy. I mean, I, I've I've heard a few authors that do fantasy say they do fantasy because there's no research involved. <laughs> Now, I know a few uh, authors of fantasy who would uh, who would disagree with that. <laughs> that <yeah. laughs> they do a I, lot of research. Yeah, it's probably yeah, it's probably an oversimplification, but it, I I thought it was kind of funny. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would, I'm not ripping on fantasy writers at all. I'm hopefully not going to do that. <laughs> no, it's uh, I, I noticed on your uh, on your website. Um, by the way, congratulations on the website. It is absolutely superb. Love it. Um, very well organized. Nice to get around it. Um, as you say, the timelines that you've um, that, that that you've constructed are all on there, and um, you know, it, it just adds weight to you know, to what you've written. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm very impressed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Most welcome. Um, if, you, if you'd like to give us the address of that website so that we can uh, you know, we can all have the benefit of it, not just me. It is uh, jacobfox.com, all one word. Um, that's, fo- Fox. that's Fox with two X's, isn't it? Yes, it's Fox with two X's. Yep. And um, that is the author site. Um, it has uh, has the blog. It has, uh, like you said, the timeline. It has a uh, background on the characters. Um, it has kind of my you know ongoing events, ongoing things going on over here in terms of new projects and new release dates, which... Uh, not any coming up, but uh, yeah, I, I, I got some help with that from uh, people that specialize in putting together author sites. So I can't, I'm not going to take full credit for the site, but it is, it uh, is very good. It really is. I've, 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 I've only, um, I only got the notification off you that, uh, that that we could do this interview um, a couple of days ago, um, and I, I must confess I haven't read any of your books yet, uh, but from the from the website um, I'm going to go out and get them. <laughs> Because they, they they look done good. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so, buy a bunch, hand them out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, will do. Um, do. Do you do you ever come over to Britain to the um, to the uh, Comic Con type uh, things? I I've only started going to conventions a couple of years ago. Uh, kind of around the same time I was doing all of this, I decided to to start doing the convention thing and seeing you know what these things are about. And I have not been to the big one, uh, Worldcon. I've not uh, been to any of them in Europe. I've been to a few in North Carolina here, uh-huh. one in Colorado. And uh, sorry, no, so I, I was agreeing and saying, uh huh. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Um, but they're, I mean, they're they're definitely interesting, and I uh, I love the costumes and everything, and it's uh, it turned out to be a lot of fun. It's not uh, they are quite amazing, they, aren't they? Yeah, they get kind of they get kind of a bad rap uh, with some people over here. Um, uh, being kind of a you know nerdy nerds paradise kind of dull and dry, but they're really not. They're actually surprising. They're a lot of fun and entertaining. And I I've been to I've traveled in Europe a few times. I've only gone through London through their airport. I've not had the chance to actually uh, see England or Wales or 
Ireland or any of the Isles there. I've been to Germany, Spain, and uh, Sweden. All right, right. So, yes, yeah, so we're, we're, we're quite different in Britain. So, um, the the um, the Comic Con um, type um, conventions of, of they're getting big here, but we're still sort of fairly underground. You you don't go down the road with your um, you know, with your Klingon outfit on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, but, but apart from that, I mean, I mean, I have done on occasion, but. Um, you get some rather odd looks. Well, they're they're not Klingons are not easy to talk to, so you, it's uh, sometimes off-putting to see them around. Uh, so. Have you ever <laughs> not uh, friendly of kind? <laughs> have you ever listened to the Welsh language? Welsh language? Yeah. No, I have not. Very, very, very similar to Klingon. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I did not know. Uh, when you um, when you when you come off. Um, off speaking to me, just go on on the on the web and and have a look for somebody speaking Welsh, and you'll just see how close the Klingon it is. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, excuse me, <coughs> that's bad. Um, yeah. So, um, so 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 you're new to the convention scene. Um, do you have any plans for coming over to Britain? I I I didn't have any plans on it. I do definitely want to. Um, it's a uh, it's kind of, uh, as things go along here, we're kind of, I'm starting off with doing the, the local ones in this area and then moving on to the bigger ones in the U.S. And then, yeah, going uh, mm-hmm. international, the U.K., certainly, and wherever else where uh, science fiction is uh, popular and in demand. Excellent. Um, the, uh, the Krypton Radio is actually based in California. Um, so that's where that's where the majority of the the listening populace is. Although it's sort of getting spread out a bit now. Um, apparently, it was in the top three percent of Google searches or something like that, um, which is yeah, which is getting pretty good. Yeah, I saw I saw it had some pretty good traffic. I also noticed that one of the uh, one of the contributors is uh, Susan Fox, which is the name of my stepmom. Oh right. <laughs> yeah, that was a little that was a little of a surprise. I didn't know she did that on the side. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, bit of a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean the the um, Krypton Radio guys are, are, are terrific. They, you know, um, I've, I've built up some really good friendships there, and uh, you know, it, it's nice to be able to contribute for them. Um, but uh, if you're if, if there's a Comic Con over in uh, California way, um, you know, drop in. I yeah, there's a long there's a I I track them. Um, in terms of where they are around the country, they have them, you know, they have them everywhere here now. And I know California is a hot spot because of uh, Silicon Valley and the, yep. the big tech uh, centers that they have in up in San Fran, but also the Hollywood connection, you know, with movies in Los Angeles and San Diego. And so I, yeah, I definitely will have to make my way out there as well. It's uh, seems to be it's the, it from where I am, it's almost the same distance as England is. But uh, oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but you can drive there. You can't drive to England. That's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not unless the Atlantic freezes over. No, I think I think the temperature's going the other way. So yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, which which brings me on to on, on to something else in your books. Um, the history is pretty bleak. It yeah, it's a it begins yeah it begins as a post apocalyptic event a, a nuclear war in in asia and uh the story kind of starts out that way that the because to my to my mind in a lot of in the star trek in general we kind of just find our way into space and it's kind of a curiosity and i i kind of take a little bit more of a, a more straightforward approach that we're not going to really 
look to colonize other worlds or move, you know, and invest the money necessary to develop these technologies unless we have a really compelling reason to do it. Um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, which is kind of the, the driving force behind this, that we needed to find a new home world in, in my book, in the fifth world. Um, our planet was, we were pretty much convinced that it was dying. Uh, because of the nuclear winter that came about, the dramatic change in temperature, the you know the mass die-off crops and mm-hmm. radio radiation sickness, and this is something that drove us to drove the world to to unite and find a new possibly find a new home planet, get as many people off Earth as possible, and the conclusion was you, you know you can't move several billion people off the planet that fast, so you have to start making some tough decisions on who you're going to move and and how you're going to decide and. So that's that's the beginning of it, and then they do find uh, the new world, Gaia, which is uh, about 65, 68 light years away. Um, and we, of course, you, they develop that, you know faster than light travel to get there. I saw that the new star drive, it was uh, the the Hydean drive, is it? Yeah, it's a it's a variation. I, d- I decided I wasn't going to be too. Uh, uh, creative on that side because I am not a theoretical physicist. And as I was saying, <laughs> as I was saying before, if you don't, you don't do your homework. And I'm not, I wasn't willing to go to graduate school for physics. So I used a variant of, uh, kind of the same, uh, warp theory that Star Trek uses, the uh, mm-hmm. Gary, um, drive. Yep. Uh, which involves the manipulation of, uh, gravitational fields in front of the ship and behind the ship. And I just used the, the high, I created the hydrogen particle to be the thing that can generate these fields and gotcha. went from there. So it's, uh, that's how we managed to do it. It's, it's something that was a theory before the nuclear war, before the, the white storm is what people came to call it because it, it turned the skies a, a whitish gray. It, uh, it obscured the blue sky. It created a, a haze over most of the planet. So people started referring to it as the white storm. And, uh, so they, they get theory and they decide to put, you know, throw a lot of money at it to get it working. And they finally get it working. They get uh, the first ship over to Gaia and then the ship doesn't come back. And they, uh, they just assume it was a failure. And, uh, that's, uh, that's where the, the book comes in a little bit before that, but you get early on that something went wrong. And then about 10 to 15, about, what was it, 14 years later, they, they do a flyby of Gaia, uh, for, you know, purely, research purposes and they find an actual colony there and they realize that the mission was a success only the ship didn't come back and so the the second half of the story is them investigating what happened to the ship what's going on on Gaia and why is it that uh, you know you know yeah. what, what went wrong you know and yeah yeah that, that that that's the bit that's got me intrigued now, I'm not asking for spoilers here because that that, that wouldn't be fair mm-hmm. but uh yeah the the idea that um that the ship didn't come back and and why it didn't come back and and I think there's a lot more than just um uh you know we didn't feel like coming back you know that's yeah. going on there yeah um it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on well it's a, yeah it's modeled after uh the events um of this first uh, event uh, are modeled after actually what happened in, during the colonial era with um, the Americas ah right and the and the American Revolution that if you establish colonies or establish kind of a, a some sort of province a long distance away, you're going to have a hard time governing it. Yeah. And there's there's an additional twist in this one because the ship didn't come back. They didn't even get a chance to govern it. But it's 65 light years away, and it's uh, a hundred roughly a hundred thousand colonists, and you and they were left alone for 14 years, and their their attitudes towards Earth and towards uh, 
everything in general have changed dramatically because yep. they've, uh, they've lost contact with the home world. They don't really feel any kind of, and it's a lot like what, what happened to the America, some of the colonists in the, in America during the 1760s and 70s. They, they stopped feeling like, uh, British subjects. Yeah. Yeah. It's understandable. Understandable. Mm-hmm. I said that's understandable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Being a Brit, you know, it's like, yeah, we we want our country back. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be sensitive here, you know. Not, oh, I realise that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> hey, 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 you, you, you can be like a sledgehammer with me. It's water for ducks back. <laughs> well, the, the, um, the story unfolds a little differently because the earth, in, in my story, you know, because I don't want to... If it was a perfect one-on-one analogy, it wouldn't be as interesting. No. But it goes differently here because it was there was a catastrophe that made people move from one planet to the other, not necessarily true for the colonial era. And um, the Earth government, which is called the Terran Federation, uh, kind of takes some very extreme measures uh, as a result of the White Storm. And so you, you have kind of this um, already kind of a violent and and very unfriendly government um to start out with now that that didn't come along in the american revolution until later on the the stamp act and kind of the things that got out of hand after on but early on it was you know britain was uh you know had a parliament that had all these things and and the british subjects of the american colonies were thriving and there wasn't any kind of um there wasn't really any kind of uh, hostility, but of course, in, in a story like this, you have to kind of move things along and not yeah. you know, let it go 150 years between the colonizing of the region and the revolution itself. It kind of had to be sped up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, you're talking 60 odd light years, um, so you know, in in real terms, yes, yeah, so the, um, the, the the they're not faster than light drives. Uh, you're talking 60 years difference anyway. There, you know, 140 odd years there and back. Yeah, the, um, I didn't, yeah, that's true. I kind of, uh, what I did with the ship is that you, like, kind of with, with the Star Trek drive is they put you in a subspace bubble, so time does move differently for you, but it's not dramatic. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that, because uh, Gene Roddenberry actually ignored that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I decided I, that when you do put yourself in this, in, in this negative field in between the two gravity fields, that you're, to you, nothing is happening. You know, move, time is moving as as, as you still yeah. would. And in reality, the universe, nothing is really changing in the universe except for the immediate space around you. I mean, the the two fields around you. Earth is moving as it would. So there's no real. Uh, there's. I'm sure there's probably some problems with the math there. I uh, I decided not to get into that too much. Uh, I did try to explain the drive and try to explain the systems and everything and how it would work and. Yeah try to keep it similar to, to Star Trek because I didn't want the book to be about faster than light travel. No, obviously. Yeah, I, I do love technology. I, I love that stuff. But I wanted it to be a story more about kind of money um, uprising and kind of dealing with the patrol have to leave Earth. Um, what if a place wasn't becoming inhabitable? Some solutions would we can go underground. We can go to Mars and live in dome cities or go to the moon and live in dome cities. Um, and those and those are all yeah. explored. I mean, I'm, this would... I think if, <clears> if something like this happened it would kind of be uh an all the we would have an all the above approach we would just do all of them and and make sure and hope one of them works out uh so you you have colonies on the moon you have colonies on mars you have some countries building underwater or underground uh cave systems to to go underground so to get away from the uh 
the um, the radiation, and then you know you have this one group of people that say, hey, we we might be able to find a new home world and terraform it in a relatively short period of time because it's very Earth-like to begin with. It's very similar to Earth. We just need to just need to bump up the oxygen level a little bit, and and that might be the 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 real solution, the full you know the full uh, end game for how to, how to get away from this disaster. Well, with, with with Mars, you'd have a great deal of difficulty doing that because as soon as you put an atmosphere on Mars, you'd lose it. Yeah, they don't. It doesn't have the. It's, uh, not, mass- the, it's not massive enough. Yeah, it doesn't have the magnetosphere or anything. Uh, yeah, so they would lose it. Well, the the, the um, going into science. If you look at the uh, mean free velocity of oxygen and nitrogen and so on, um, it's greater than the escape velocity of Mars. So it just eventually just fly off into space very quickly. Yeah, the other challenge with Mars. <laughs> Sorry. And, no, well, the other challenge with Mars is that it has no ozone layer. So a lot of the dangerous um, radiation rays that come from the sun, which we're protected from, in addition, to, I think there's the magnetic field. You know, protects us from a lot of yeah. It, there's no magnetic field. Yeah, so you you have no ozone. So some of the um, what's what's the ray? I believe it's uh, ultraviolet. UV. Yeah, ultraviolet yeah. UV. I mean, so you couldn't really go outside uh, in on Mars. No, <laughs> no, not unless you, you got not unless you got some oxygen, and then the UV would generate the the ozone. But there's no yeah. but there's no oxygen there anyway. So there's a question of how long that would take and there's a question of how effective it would really be so to start off with yeah you'd have to live in a closed dome with yeah. no windows yeah which is which is more like um, the total recall scenario isn't it yeah yeah uh, it's it, it's just fascinating you know the uh, the, you know, the ideas that you've had because they're I, I i get the impression uh, just reading your um your website that you care a great deal about the environment and um and what we're doing to it yeah, I have. Um, I, I didn't want this to be about uh, like the book. I mean, I, as uh, as kind of a, a commentary on global warming. But there are there are certainly some things that happen when you're doing damage you're not even aware of. Yeah. And, and in this case, you you have a and also just you you don't really know you don't really know what the effects going to be until you know some time has passed and then you realize oh we've we should probably stop this. Well, at that point, it's too late. And the the real cataclysm on Earth is the nuclear war. It's it's not necessarily a uh, environmental or pollution story, but the the thing is that it doesn't need to be a, a world war with hundreds of missiles between Russia and the U.S. or Russia and, or U.S. and China. It can be a a regional nuclear conflict where you just have enough um, ash and debris thrown into the air, um, and eventually it'll circle the globe and start obstructing sunlight. That even even though the U.S. and a lot of the world is still intact after this war, only two countries were destroyed. You know, in the story, India and China, you still have tremendous amount of damage done outside. You know, throughout the whole planet because of this one war and because of they decided to use nukes, which are it's the bluntest <laughs> the bluntest tool you can use. And it's uh, it's kind of I do I feel pretty strongly that uh, you know about you know nuclear disarmament. I don't know if zero nukes is realistic, but uh, I mean, you you use these weapons, and you and and the thought always was that you would win the war, and once you annihilated the enemy, it's over, you've won, and that's not the case. We now have a pretty good reason to believe that you start a war, no one's going to win. Yeah, uh, so. and that, that that is pretty scary. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, th- th- there was that um, there was that film in the 1950s, 1950s, early 60s, uh, about the submarine that was going around the world looking for looking for people that had survived, and they didn't find anybody. They were all that was left. Oh. That was that was. That was Terrifying! It was it was probably probably one of the most scary films I've ever seen, uh, and it was all in black and white. It was all very you know very properly done and everything, but oh, it was scary. Yeah. Well, there is some good news. I mean, there's some good news right now. I put this. I, I believe that a nuclear war is inevitable. I think these eventually some idiot's gonna or someone's gonna make a big mistake. But I think for for where we are today versus you know the Cold War last century, we're Things are getting actually a little safer. There's a lot less of these weapons um, deployed, and a lot of them are being dismantled now. Of course, the problem is more people have them, even though there's less of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's not exactly a lot of progress, but I mean, you you don't have two countries that have thousands and thousands of them. They're starting to draw them down, and you, of course, we're not we're not where we need to be. But I, I am. You hopeful? I'm not. You hopeful for I, the future? I'm a little hopeful for. For the short term, yeah. I, I am, but for the long term, I just feel that these things. Eventually, someone's going to be silly and use these things, and and it's not going to. They're not going to be around for us to, you know, point at them and be like, "I told you so." <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, if, if if we can, if we can hurry along from that particular scenario, uh, being as it's coming up to Christmas. <laughs> um, right. Right. Uh, you're. you're <laughs> Uh, one of the books that you're talking about uh, coming into being is um, a steampunk anthology. It's um, it's a new or a steampunk? No. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. It's a it's kind of a cyberpunk. Story. That, that's the one I meant. Cyberpunk. I do apologize. Okay. I do apologize. Yeah, I'm working on something. Uh, <laughs> it's a good. That's a that's a good transition because this story is a lot light, a lot more lighthearted. Uh, it's um. I have I have kind of a, a love of uh, robots and fighting robots, transformers, machines, battle mechs, and everything like that. And so I wanted to do a story of this uh, this group of guys or this team of people that have have one of them, and they fight them in these kind of like these futuristic style boxing matches uh-huh. between two. Mechs. And so they're it's it's illegal. It's uh so it's kind of an underground thing. They have to do these things on obscure planets and. You know, these these guys are basically, they're not really legit, you know. They're uh, doing this all under the table, and they have uh, one of these war machines, essentially, that they're not supposed to have. And the government finally comes through and, and puts it down and ends and breaks up the league. Well, when when they come in to break up the fight, their mech rips apart a bunch of these, these government military-grade weapons, which are supposed to be, you know, the best mechs in the universe. And they have one, and these this group of uh, you know borderline criminals have one that's better, and they're they find themselves in a situation where they're not just common criminals anymore. The the whole universe seems to think they're terrorists or they're separatists, and it's kind of them. It's kind of them coming to like they're you know they're just on the run. They're just kind of like they become criminals, pirates, and they they kind of uh, things kind of just. Uh, get out of control they're not you know they have no interest in politics or any of this stuff they just kind of find themselves in the middle of something and, and you nobody, know the, and nobody believes them because the more you say i'm not interested in politics they think you're interested in politics well the the one uh one one group tries to take credit for what happened and say that oh yeah these are our people they're part of the movement now these are their heroes and 
builds them up and everything, and they're you know they're watching this on television screens like oh crap we're we're in we're in it pretty deep and <laughs> poor things <laughs> they want out yeah they want out they just want a normal life it's it's kind of like it's going to be novellas it's going to be shorter kind of shorter stories and it's it kind of it's modeled a little bit after uh, the show Firefly how you have these people that they're really not. I mean, you you get you 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 end up you know liking them and really respecting them, but on the surface, they're basically just pirates. They're basically just you know not really uh, upstanding citizens. Oh, that's and that's cool. I I, I I I can live with it. Not upstanding. That's fine. <laughs> but that, that that sounds like great fun. It it's it's more fun. Um, I yeah, I wanted to do something on the other side that wasn't political. It's it's more comedy. It's more just. Uh, you know, normal people finding themselves in a, you know, in over their heads. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you said that you're you're a, a Trekkie, um, next generation. Um, what what do you think of the original series? I I only have gotten to see a few of the original series, a few episodes of the original series, um, and then I of course I've seen all the movies mm-hmm. and loved the movies. I loved uh, you know. Wrath of Khan and the Journey Home and all those things, but of the actual original TV series, I've only seen a couple, and I mean I love it. It's the same kind of, um, you know, it's smart. I mean, it's it, there's there's there was nothing like it on TV at the yeah. time, from what I understand. I saw the um, I saw the special that Gene Roddenberry's son did on on HBO on Trek Nation, mm-hmm. and he he goes through the whole experience, and I guess he was um, estranged from from Gene Roddenberry from his father, but. Uh, he kind of came around full circle to to try and understand this whole phenomenon that his father created and the, the love of it and everything. And I, you know, I've I've been hooked from it since I was a kid, and I just love the and Picard is my favorite though. It, it's it's not Kirk, it's, <laughs> unfortunately. Hey, it's it's I, whoever you see first, I think. I think I think it is. Yeah, I, it, probably the wiser course would have been for me just to be neutral and say I love them all. No, but, no, uh, no, that that. that. Really that would be that would be totally artificial. Everybody has their own captain. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I actually met one too. I met uh, Avery Brooks at a convention in Denver. Oh, fantastic! Oh yeah, it was very cool. It was uh, at a actually it wasn't even in the convention. It was at the hotel bar, and I didn't even know he was sitting next to me. And but uh, the voice, you know, was so yeah distinct yeah <laughs> that, 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 that would have been just so cool that would have been so cool I mean th- what I'm trying to do at the moment is to get hold of Bill Shatner for for an interview uh, but getting hold of him is like getting hold of hen's teeth oh wow I bet he uh, he did a he did a show uh, Boston Legal I don't know if uh, you've ever seen yes, that I've one seen, or I've seen a little of it yeah uh, he's, yeah he plays a lawyer and he is such a that guy is such a riot I mean it would have been i That'd be a great interview. He's, he, That'd be very he's just fun all the time, isn't he? I, I like the guy because he, he doesn't actually take himself that seriously. No, not really. <laughs> yeah, um, they, when, when, when you hear him singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, yeah, you, you, you know you've got a really great guy on your hands. <laughs> uh, and he, had a, he had a roast on Comedy Central over here, uh, an hour long, uh, where he's sitting on the hot seat and everyone's bashing him. Yeah, uh, I, 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 don't, it, I don't like those, but, um, you know, Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it, you know, it depends on your sense of taste. You know, that, that that's okay, that's fine. But uh, I, I tend not to watch them. You know, to, to show somebody, to my mind, to show somebody that much disrespect is is not a very nice thing to do. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's just my point of view. 
Well, he he's also done. Um, I think the the thing that was really great is when he came to do the the tribute to George Lucas. Yeah. Uh, he went out there and and so Bill Shatner was the the toast uh, master. Goes out there and he pretends like it's a Star Trek convention for the first few minutes. Oh. <laughs> somebody. And they have somebody come up there and whisper in his ear, you know, as if, you know, this isn't for you, this is for George <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, he sings, uh, You Did It Your Way by uh, <laughs> the George Lucas. Absolutely superb. <laughs> Absolutely superb. Yeah. Do you, um, are, are you part of the Doctor Who phenomenon? I've, I've had a number of people hit me over the head and tell me I need to be watching that show. I have not watched <sighs> it, but... I have people yelling and screaming at me that I should be watching. Sh- I have Netflix too, so I don't really have an excuse. Oh my dear boy! <laughs> yeah, I need to. I need to pick a Saturday here and just go on a marathon Catch up. and uh, yeah. yeah, figure out what the deal is. Yeah. Well, if, if you if you start with the the very early series, yeah, the the ones back in the sixties seventies, um, then you know, you'll you'll just absorb everything about them. They're, they're just absolutely superb. Um, Nearly everybody that I know is Hoovian. Um, I myself, Hoovian and Trekkie. <laughs> I I see them at the conventions all the time in their in their tweed jackets and uh, that's right and their, their hairdos to to match uh, the doctor. Yeah. So I'd... <laughs> yeah. I, I've I've got I've got the long coat and the scarf. You know, the Tom Baker era is me. Um, so, oh, okay. uh, but that's uh, that's because I'm I'm not a young man anymore. <laughs> See, see. Well, uh, I, all right. I'll have to get on that because I, I think I'm, I'm getting in too much trouble now. Oh, you love uh, it. You love it. Now an interview on a, on a, on Krypton Radio, neon record of not seeing Doctor Who. I am, I am, I am <laughs> nonplussed. I really am. <laughs> a, a sci-fi writer who hasn't watched Doctor Who. That has got to be a first. I, I began with, with, uh, like I said, Star Trek, and I moved on to, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, which is my favorite of oh, all time. Superb. And, and watched, I watched the 1984 movie with, uh, Patrick Stewart and, and all them, and also saw the, the sci-fi channel, yeah. uh, version of it with, uh, William Hurt. Yeah. And yeah, that is, that is still, I've read a lot of books since then, but that one, Dune is still just an incredible one for me. It is iconic, and, isn't it? It is. It's so. It's so deep. It's there's so many details. There's so much. Uh, I can't imagine how much research he did. Uh, I've heard it took years before he even started writing it, the research and preparation, because it's it's an incredibly rich book. And yeah, that. So I started off from from Star Trek: Next Generation, going backwards to Frank Herbert, and then it was H.G. Wells and Joe Byrne and Isaac Asimov. So I'd, it, I, have, it, I guess a uh, good education. Uh, yeah, I kind of went to the classics first, and I haven't. I guess I haven't reached uh, the Star Trek original series and Doctor Who yet in the timeline. Yeah, so. uh, have you ever read any of the Lensman? No, I haven't. Ah, so there's the Len- there's more for you. Um, e-, e-, e. Doc Smith. E. Doc e- Smith. E. Doc Len- Smith. Yeah, um, he was um, a food scientist, and he wrote. Um, whole series of books about um, galactic policemen for want of a better phrase called the lensman hmm. and uh, very very good um, again sort of classic I'm getting like Pardon? <laughs> I'm getting homework assignments here <laughs> <laughs> uh, when uh, when Star Wars first came out um, one of the critics said um, science fiction 
the science fiction movies genre has come up to the lensman stage. Okay. So, you know, it's it was, standard. Pardon? It's a, it's the standard, or was the standard at the time. Yeah, very much so. Um, but the, the, the Lensman series were written in the 1940s. Ah, okay. So, so they're, they're, for, for their time, they're very, very advanced. And, uh, lot, lots of people have sort of borrowed from the Lensman ideas ever since. There, there's a, one actually, it's from that era that I just recently read. It's, uh, Earth Abides by, uh, George Stewart, I think is yeah, I think it's George Stewart. All right. It's a it's a post apocalyptic one of a virus that kills off I think ninety nine percent and it's it's nineteen it was written in nineteen forty nine, I think, or forty seven. And it's just extraordinary of how much of uh, those ideas now go into virtually every post apocalyptic um, movie or book or anything since then, um, whether it's, you know, nuclear war or, or virus or whatever. Yeah. You know. The kind of getting back to basics. In fact, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, The Walking Dead, of how you 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 lose all that, uh, all those people die off. You're not just losing people; you're losing their expertise. You're losing their knowledge, and you have to go back to basics of you know, or, you know, riding horses. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Building. <coughs> just coughing. <laughs> yeah, and it, I rem- I just remember reading that and thinking, this is really how old is this? It's sixty years old. This is fantastic for. For, uh, and now I kind of think of everything that's happened since then and kind of compare it to Earth Abides because it was just a fantastic story of what happens when things when things go wrong. Um, you you know <laughs> you have to get back to basics and you kind of start from scratch. Very much so, and, and, and one person has to be able to do everything. You know, from from prepare food to to actually go out and catch it and you know kill stuff and all the rest of it. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think in business, it's kind of the story of uh, ten. There's the ten percent that do ninety percent of the work, yeah. and then ninety percent that do ten percent of the work. Yeah. So you you need to find one of those dynamic people that can that's gonna help your little tribe or whatever. That's right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've learned um, in my um, in my times of doing archaeology, um, I've learned to nap flint. So, uh, you know, from, from sort of glass and glassy rocks and flint, I can actually make some, you know, some quite interesting tools. Ah, do you have any insight on how they built Stonehenge yet? Um, yeah, it was, uh, I think it was about 500, 500 druids, uh, sitting in the middle of, uh, Salisbury Plain, praying that one day somebody would invent Lego. <laughs> so it was an alien. That's good. I don't think it was alien. Uh, it, it, it's, it's very. There was a program on about it the other night, um, and they reckon that it sort of changed out of all recognition from its original um, purpose. Um, but I, I, I go with the idea that underneath it is the Pandorica. But the Pandorica. You, but, but you, not having seen Doctor Who, wouldn't know that. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm trying to get. I'm, I'm trying to put in my mind what that might be. Pandora and Pandorica would be. Yeah, it, it's it's um okay. I'll give you a spoiler. It's um a box that um is a prison for the greatest warrior in the universe. Ah. Okay, and that's, that's and that's all that's, you're going to get out of me about it. Okay. <laughs> I watched, uh, I actually on the, on the website, on jacobfox.com, I, I wrote about, uh, my love of the show Ancient Aliens. I don't know if they showed over there. No, I haven't seen that. It's, um, it's based, it's this show based around the, um, ancient astronaut theory. Ah, uh, oh, right. Uh, Eric Von Daniken's, uh, works. Yes. And the show goes through, in addition to that one, a number of the other kind of, the whole tree of, uh, 
ancient astronaut theory ideas on the pyramids, on the Mayans, on uh, on genetics, on all these things. I mean, it's 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 a it's a whole lot of fun because some of it is just ridiculous. And yeah. they're they had their theories on Stonehenge and on on the Mo- the Moy statues of Easter Island and using anti gravity and using sonic uh, devices to levitate these things and. And they they speak about it like this is so obvious. Like this this is how they did it. I don't know. What, I don't know what these archaeologists are trying to tell us that they use tools for. They clearly used anti gravity. Yeah, of course they did. Of course they did. Yeah. What else would they have done? Well, one of the things that gets me about the South American um, pyramid uh, buildings is that you've got all these irregular stones and they're fitting together like like pieces in a jigsaw. Yeah, you couldn't put a razor blade between them. Um, and you know, it's just you know, obviously they had the technology to do it. They used it, you know, and, and you, you have these amazing things you know, that come out of it. Uh, but you know how they did it, I don't know. But I don't think it was anti gravity. <laughs> well, that's I, the thing I like about because sometimes they hit on something that does sound interesting. And the the one one of my favorites is when they find evidence of, of civilizations that are much older than Sumeria or or what we think is the oldest. Yeah, and find these cities like for in India, I forget the name of the city, but they found us. Uh, an old ancient city which is now underwater and yeah. they and they uh, of course they pick up radio you know they pick up radiation and radioactivity they can't explain that and then they they there's the thinking that it could be very very old 10,000 years old and and it's that that is kind of striking to me because that to me is very possible that there's civilizations and places that might be that old and and yeah, I, in South America and those things that are very old and we only have the most basic understanding of what they did, and we can't even explain how they built this stuff. And I'd agree with you. Yeah, I'm, I, I have no problem at all with uh, with ten thousand year old you know, dead civilizations or or civilizations that we came from. Got no problem with that at all. Yeah, I'm still I'm 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 still open to the idea of Atlantis and it being somewhere, and we fu- we're we're going to find it one day. And of course, uh, some people are disappointed, and some people will be enamored. <laughs> they, they, they found it. There's a Stargate to it. Haven't you seen the documentaries? Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> Colonel O'Neill. Right. Sorry, I've been very facetious, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, pro- yeah. Well, that 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 whole mystery solved. Let's move on to something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's solve the whole sort of China India issue and. Uh, <laughs> uh. I love that show too. That was a good show. <laughs> it's it, it, it's on here for the first time at the moment. Uh, really? On yeah, on um, what we call Freeview um, here in Britain, and um, I'm I'm watching it. Sort of, I, I'm recording blocks of it and then watching it. Uh, it's it, it's okay. It's better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the movie. I think the movie began everything, and they've had the show on here. Yeah, the, for, the uh, movie you... was superb. Love the movie. Yeah. the... the... James Spader and yeah, that was that was excellent. The, there's I think three shows or three shows based on it: uh, Atlantis, SG One, and there was a third one for a while. I don't think it lasted. Yeah, but, uh, it was uh, Stargate Universe, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, I, I I thought it was a bit a little bit too bitty and it didn't sort of gel. No, yeah, it deviated from the style a lot, and it's probably why. It, probably I think they were taking a risk with it; and it didn't work out for them, but. Uh, no, I love the start, the Atlanta stuff, because you always have the, the the military officers with senses of humors and comic relief. Whether it's Colonel O'Neill or it's the um, the uh, 
the, the major or the major whoever leads the away teams on Atlantis. I can't remember yeah. now, but it's a I like watch. It's just fun. I mean, it's it's kind of low, not really the highest brow in terms of technology, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah. So so Stargate ones on your list. Yeah, I've I have watched those shows, so I don't need to. I don't need to fill out that, that. I don't check that box. Oh dear. Um, right. Uh, what else can I ask you? Um, what are you doing for Christmas? Uh, going to the parent. Uh, my uh, family is pretty close here, uh, about twenty minutes away. So we're gonna have uh, Christmas at the the house there and fly everyone in. Uh, I have a lot of family from Chicago and Illinois and Denver, and they don't want to stay there for, for Christmas because it's snowing and it's twenty five degrees. Oh, so they come down here where it's fifty and there's no snow. That's cool. So everyone, yeah, everyone's eager to come come visit us for Christmas because this is where this is where you need to be in winter. Yeah. Yeah, we, we 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 have a we have a very um, a very short sort of winter. It snows here for about oh a week, two weeks, and then and then it's all gone. You know, it just disappears overnight. <clears throat> but when it's here, it's very intense, and so three snowflakes in the whole of the UK just grinds to a halt. Yeah, same here. Uh, it snows once or twice a year, and everything must shut down and call in the national guard. Yeah, so pretty bad. Whereas in Chicago, we can we have to go to school when there's ten inches of snow on the ground. Yeah, so, it, it, it's curious, isn't it? Curious. Yeah, it's it, it's a big culture shock because I'm from a, you know the cold city, and I come down here, and I'm I'm used to driving in snow, and everyone else is panicking and sliding around, and it's kind of dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to drive with these people when there's ice or snow; they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I used to think I was pretty good on snow until one day up in the up in the hills in North Wales, um, a place called Denby Moor. Um, I was driving along what I thought was a very, very safe speed and all of a sudden just lost control and ended up sort of perched on top of a snowdrift, unable to move or, or anything. And it was only uh, a, a very kindly Welsh hill farmer came along and towed me off that I was able to get out. It was oh. uh, it was very interesting. <laughs> yeah, you... you you're, <laughs> you're confident in your skills until you failed. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> I, had that, uh, I had a jeep. I had a jeep. I had an SUV uh, going through a snowstorm, and I was yeah. I got pretty overconfident as well, and spun out of control into a ditch, and tried to use the four wheel drive to get me out, but it didn't work. And I needed a, I needed a, a truck to pull me out. And meanwhile, my friend was in a car ahead of me, and her car also went into the ditch, but she was able to get herself out. So. Her little, you know, uh, front wheel drive, uh, car got out of a ditch and my big, you know, <laughs> four wheel drive off road vehicle could not get out. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> well, let's, uh, it, let's hope there's very little snow this year for you. Um, yeah, I'm hoping so. Um, last I, year, last year in California, um, in, um, Torrance, um, where one of our uh, one of our staff uh, lives, um, they actually shipped in um, a wagon load of snow for the kids to play in. <laughs> so it's it's bla- blazing sunshine and this and this small mountain of snow. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and I, I just thought that is not fair because I looked out of my my bedroom window and it was like two feet of snow outside. Yeah. <laughs> You can't escape it. <laughs> I can't escape it. No, it's awful. 
but oh. uh, yeah, as I say, it only lasts for a, only lasts for about two weeks or so, and that's it. It's gone. Um, you, know, you say goodbye to it for another year, and we've been very fortunate this year because it's quite warm outside at the moment. Oh, good. That's uh, like global warming. It's kind of sometimes it has benefits. Well, uh, yeah. It, 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 <laughs> when the jet stream shifts, it'll it'll just freeze up like in um, day after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah, but uh, yeah. So so um, we're coming up to the end of the hour. Um, thank you very much for your um, for your interview. It's been great fun. When you bring out your book of. Um, Cyber cyberpunk. Yeah, I've, yep. I'm, I'm using the term. I don't know if uh, I I try not to get into to me uh, discussions on genre. Definition. Oh no, no, it's kind of like a losing battle. But to me, cyberpunk is a it's like a low life. Um, it's kind of one of the terms I've heard, heard as and I want it to be. And uh, that'll be ready. Uh, the first one will probably be ready in a couple months. Uh, the, the third book in the in the fifth world series uh, will be coming out towards the end of next year. I hope. Right. And how, and how do we get hold of those? Can we get hold of them in the shops, or do we get hold of them online? Um, the fifth or world or and and the second one, the fifth world, um, the times, the Trimens Souls. Those two are available at uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, uh, for every for every every kind of e-reader. Uh, whether you have a Kindle, a Nook, uh, an iPad, a Kobo, wherever you get those, you'll find them. They're available. Fantastic. Uh, for the paperback, for the old-fashioned paperback, uh, that's available at Amazon.com for ten ninety-nine. The right. the first one that's, is uh, that, that that's ten dollars ninety nine. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I can't okay. remember. <laughs> I can't remember what the British uh, what the, the price pounds. Is. <laughs> it's uh, I think it's eight pounds. Um, I'd have to check, uh, but because um, it it is it is sold uh, in a number of markets: Australia, UK, Canada. Um, and the paperback is uh, the first the first book I believe is ten ninety five. The second one's ten ninety nine. Um, I don't know why I, I decided on four cents more for the second one but um, you're worth it <laughs> I think it is it's I did yeah. I did four cents more worth of work on it so yeah. well if the if, if the if the books are anywhere near as good as the the excerpts that, that they're on your website here yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading them thank you thank you I hope you enjoy it and um, yeah uh, let me know what you think uh, okay <laughs> well, well when when you when your cyberpunk books on, come out would you like to come back and talk to us about them? Sure, I'm more than happy to. That's fantastic. Thank you. No problem, no problem. This has been episode 44 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for December 28th, 2013. Your host has been Ralph Carr. Our guest this week has been science fiction novelist Jacob Fox, the author of the Oribe series, the second and most recent book in the series of which is Fifth World, The Times That Try Men's Souls. The episode will air again on Sunday, December 29th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.